Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. In this week's podcast, I'm speaking to fellow East Midlander Jack Badhams. He's worked as a bird ringer, volunteered at Sherwood Forest, and currently works on Springwatch as a researcher. I really enjoy watching Jack's Instagram stories, which are informative, short, and snappy. And you can follow him at Jab Adams. No, sorry, J. Jab Adams. J. J A B A D D A M S. God, you can tell I'm dyslexic, can't you? And it's there I saw Jack do a story on non natives which got me thinking they'd be a great subject to cover as I'm equally annoyed with some and enthralled by others. So we discuss a bit about Jack's career, but we also look, are all non-native species bad? Are we at the point of no return with some alien species? And discuss a new type of conservation gaining momentum, compassionate conservation, where you don't kill anything. Here's our chat. Well, Jack, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, it should be A up, really, shouldn't it? Because we're both yeah. from the same, uh, same neck of the world. A up, me, do Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> I, always exactly. get look, I always get people looking at me like I've spat in their face. It's normally Southerners. Um, if I try and bring out the, the Midlander in me, I go A up. Because I'm like, oh, why are you saying that to me? So I have to kind of rein it in normally. But it's nice to just let, let the Nottinghamshire flow for once. Yeah, I've definitely found that uh, moving, having moved down to Bristol, that I either, I either find myself really hamming it up hamming up the northern or really oh, turning it down so <laughs> I, it goes one way or the other really and I never talk normally it's either like properly full-on northern or not so much you don't realize you're doing it either do you like my my uh, my wife's from Kent so when I'm around her I tend to go a bit softer but then mm. if my granddad rings or my mum it's straight in like get a sausage cob on go and yeah. it just it just rushes out of me so yeah I don't know it, yeah. it, flu- it fluctuates doesn't it but um as well as being Jack and both from Nottinghamshire we both have bits and bobs to do with Spring Watch and the Watchers. Admittedly, quite a bit more because you're a story developer. Well, you started as a story developer, didn't you? Yes, and yeah. What's your role, your researcher now? Is that so right? So now, yeah. So now I'm a, I am a researcher, but um, in a slightly different role. I started as a story developer. And, and just to briefly explain what that is, a story developer is on Spring, Autumn, Winter Watch. Our, our unique selling point, really, is that we have our live cameras out wherever we're based spring watch is watching nests autumn winter watch it's normally badger sets fox dens things like that feeding stations and those cameras don't record 24 hours a day they have to have people sat there watching them so you have what we call a story developer who are people that sit and watch those cameras for basically 12 hours a day and logging everything that's happening and making sure you don't miss anything so i started as that but now i work as a researcher, but a bit of a more of a specialised researcher. I have a um, rather than working on the individual series, which I do, I also have a more kind of long term view of where the series is going and our next locations we might move to. And also the researchers that the, the kind of more standard researchers that we have on the show get sucked into working on um, particular episodes. So they might do two episodes a week. They might do one episode a week, whereas I'm more across kind of the whole thing and and finding stories and working out what yeah local wildlife stories we can tell and uh who might film them because we've been in touch about stuff before and yeah all that kind of stuff so 
So with with the story developer you're mentioning, so you said you're not recording all the time. So is it like a, on a delay or something? Like say oh, the badger does a backflip, then you've got to hit record, have you? No. So the, no. well, that's the scary thing is it's not on a delay. So if you miss it, you miss it. Oh shit! So right. it's yeah. <laughs> oh oh yeah. So imagine imagine being a, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed story developer walking into you know a program that I have watched since I was since before it was Springwatch, since it was Britain Goes Wild with Bill Oddie or whatever, when I was nine, walking in and then being faced with the, you walk into this truck, <laughs> which is how we used to do it. And you can have 27 screens with different cameras. And you're told that you can record, depending on the, the quality of the truck, it's either six or eight cameras. Right, yeah, but you, have, you haven't got to watch all 27 yourself. Well, so you have, if, <laughs> if you're doing autumn and winter watch, you have a, you're working on your own and you have about maybe 14, 15 cameras to watch by yourself. Right, on okay. spring, you have a partner because there's so much going on. Yeah. So you work in teams of two. But you have 27 cameras. You know, they've got, I don't know how many nests might be up there. 10, 15 nests, different angles, cameras in rivers, cameras on badger sets. But you can only record six or eight. And you have to choose which ones you want to leave on record. They record for 12 hours and then they start overwriting themselves. Um, but let's say, the, let's say the blue tits are gonna fledge and we have three cameras on the blue tit nest. You've got one on the top, one on the side and one outside the box. So you want all those three on record because you wanna get the moment those blue tits fledge. That takes up almost you know, half of your recording channels. And then if you've got, let's, I don't know, a gray wagtail nest, and a jay comes in and starts eating them, unless you can dive across that desk and hit record as soon as that <laughs> jay starts coming into frame, uh, you'll miss it. Yeah. So it's like the pressure, <laughs> the pressure is quite a lot. Yeah, I guess so, it is a lot of pressure, particularly like because story developer is quite, without putting too fine a point, like low down the food chain in production. So you've, yeah. got to ch- you've got to choose all these things. And yeah, I'd be... Yeah, it's a, it. it's a, I think how it's phrased in the tv industry is it's an entry-level job but it's um the the guys on the watchers they it's it's true to say that the watchers team is the nicest team in television like working is working here is 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 extraordinary and what's great about the story developer job is you are right at the heart of the action and because you're doing such long hours you get respect from the producers the presenters you know it's people really do value the story developer because without it there is no watch so and you get to be the first one to see i remember 2018 my first one watching mandarin ducks fledge out of a hole in an oak tree and the whole will they won't they when the ducklings jumped out of the tree and it was i don't know it's half six in the morning or something like that no one else around just me and and my kind of story developer partner and it was right at the heart of the action it was it was great yeah i loved it and luckily we had that one on record (laughs) That's always a bonus, isn't it? Because I was just about to say, does it get boring? But you kind of explain, I guess, there. But there must be long, <laughs> long periods of just nothing as well. Oh, so get... yeah. I I was always lucky, but because birds are my thing, I suppose a bit of my specialty. I was always put on the day shifts. So for Spring Watch, there were t- there's two lots of shifts. You do four a.m. till four p.m., or you do four p.m. till four a.m. And the night shift. For lots of people, they love the night shift because it's looking out for badgers and foxes and things. But for me, I've always been more interested in the birds' nests. But autumn and winter, when I've done those before, as a story developer, oh, you can be sat for, you can be sat for hours, like <laughs> in the dead of night, waiting for a pine martin to show up for ten minutes and then run away. It, it, yeah, so it, it can be 
sometimes a good time to put a podcast on. Or, yeah, I as, long as, as long as you're watching the screens. What happens? I don't know. Say, say you had a vindaloo the night before, and you've got to you've got to drop your goods. <laughs> what's what's the uh, what's the scenario? Well, so that that is well, in spring watch when you're working in teams of two, that's no problem. Yeah. But in autumn winter watch, yeah, that's just you know that's occupational hazard really look, look. everyone's aware that that you can't hold it in especially if you've just had a curry okay um, yeah it's not so like you've yeah. got a bucket at the side of you or anything you can you, <laughs> no you okay all right then the portal are close <laughs> um, but yeah that you do have to just leave sometimes okay all right then i guess it's not you know don't dilly dally crack on with it and i realized i was, I was you know from some of the stuff you sent over and, and talking to some of the previous guests but there seems to be a bit of an rspb Sherwood alumni on this podcast because I think you volunteered with Indy Green and, and Lucy Lapwing as well. You've worked with those yeah. guys. Yeah, so I worked. Sherwood. Yeah, I worked at Sherwood for a year. I was employed by the RSPB for a year and um, worked with Lucy, uh, who yeah is you know an incredible person, um, and Indy as well. Who I was his, I my claim to fame, or it will be my claim to fame. It probably already is. Is that I discovered Indy Green um, <laughs> because he was. He was a volunteer, he lives very close to Sherwood, and I'd heard about this really keen, I think he was 13 then, volunteer who uh, was stood in the visitor centre welcoming people, but really wanted to be out in the forest and talking about birds and stuff. And when I met him, I was absolutely blown away by him, just like as everybody is. And I was his, I kind of managed the volunteers when I was there. So I was really lucky that I, I got to talk to Indy quite a lot and we've since become pretty good friends. So yeah, that 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 kind of era at Sherwood has a lot to answer for, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think he's on the is he on he's on Winterwatch this year, isn't he? I'm sure I he saw his yeah. pop up on the trailer. Yeah, he's he's in the first episode actually. We we went up back in November or early December and we we filmed uh, we filmed a nice piece with him, yeah. Oh great. This will be so this will be released after, but I'm sure you'll be able to get on iPlayer. So if you want to check that out, definitely have a look but the, the thing I really wanted to talk to you about which I know you've done on other podcasts so I was very careful not to just retread old old things but uh, was was non-natives because it's a subject I find fascinating and it's I think I saw it on one of your Instagram stories which by the way if anyone's not seen if you don't follow Jack on Instagram I highly recommend it because his stories are so characterful like they're very snappy aren't they you kind of do these very quick edits yeah I that was I think that was really inspired by when I dipped my toe frighteningly into the world of TikTok over lockdown um, <laughs> and desperately trying to cling on to my youth and, and entered the world of TikTok. How old are you, Jack, actually? I'm, I'm 27. 27. Okay. All right. Then. A couple of so, years younger. Yeah. So <laughs> I, uh, I saw that and I, I really like the way things, things are really stylishly edited together on there. And I thought I could do something, something similar like this, but was too frightened to put it on TikTok. So I put it on Instagram. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they seem to work really well and people seem to like it because it's very just quick. And you can, yeah. have, you can have a lot of fun with it. You can, you can make jokes out of the way you edit things together and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, no, I think it works. It works really well. But you did, I can't remember exactly, it was about non-natives anyway. And that got mm. me thinking because... The UK is something like 1.7 billion pounds a year to control non-native species in the UK, which is a, a crazy amount of money. You know, think of the amount of cornettos you could get with that. It's a lot of money to do <laughs> to do this. So, and I also was remember from that Instagram story that you kind of recently changed your views on non-natives, or at least questioned your views mm. on them, haven't you? So, just wanted to delve into that a little bit. Absolutely, yeah, and um, the. The way I kind of came to the discussion was I am a, a, a great believer, I suppose, in 
making sure that I don't end up in the in the bubble, you know, the dreaded bubble of uh, self-reinforcement of everything you believe in. And whether that's following people on Twitter uh, that think a little bit differently to how I think, um, or in this case, it was seeing a book called, um, I can't remember where I came across it, but it was called something like the new, it was the new wild, how non-native species or how invasive species will be nature's salvation. And I thought, well, that is against everything that I believe. Uh, so I'm going to buy it and I'm going to read it. I can't remember the name of the author. It's probably on my bookcase behind me, Fred, someone or other. Um, but I bought it and I read it and a lot of stuff in there I particularly didn't agree with. But a lot of stuff in there, I thought it just made me reevaluate, I think, our perception on non-natives and also our perception on whether the damage that they do is really the fault of the organism or is it a symptom of how broken our ecosystems are um for example things like things like gray squirrels so gray gray squirrels i don't like gray squirrels and i would love gray squirrels to be gone completely but yeah. are gray squirrels such a problem because we don't have as many pine martins and goshawks and things like that to to, to bring them under control and really does nature care what color our squirrels are as long as we've got squirrels and they are occupying the same niche, does the ecosystem care? We might care, but red squirrels aren't an endangered species on the continent. There's loads of them. They're not a rare, they're not something that we're hanging on to because it's got nowhere else to be. So, and if we got rid of all grey squirrels, would red squirrels live in, you know, here in Bristol? I can look out my flat window and I can see grey squirrels in the trees opposite or walking along the street. Would, I, would red squirrels ever do that? So if we removed all gray squirrels, do we just end up with more areas without any squirrels whatsoever? So it was questions like that that were thrown up by this book that I started thinking, yeah, I still don't, I still don't know whether I am you know, pro gray squirrel, I'm certainly not, but there were questions like that that it threw up and I thought, and it just made me reevaluate um, my position on it and whether we should, whether we should be so militant about it I suppose. Yeah and I guess that's good to to kind of pose those questions to yourself because it's interesting you say that I'm just trying to think are there any urban red squirrels in Scotland but I don't I don't know I mean, whether that... there are I think there are in I believe there are um people listening to this probably know more about it than me I believe there are in places like Berlin I think they have okay squirrels. okay um so potentially yeah know, that, but certainly in the UK yeah um it's normally grades isn't it Predominantly, yeah. if you think of a squirrel in an urban area, it's a grey squirrel, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I guess that poses the question then, are there any uh, non-natives that are actually good? Are there any that, that there are benefits for? Well, I think <laughs> I think there are certain non-natives that we like. And this is another thing that the, the, the book and my since kind of thinking after reading it has, has wrestled with, is there are certain non-natives that we are very willing to accept wholeheartedly. Uh, things like mandarin ducks. Yeah. We're doing a we're doing a film about Mandarin ducks on Winter Watch um, because they're stunning. Um, things like uh, little owls. Little owls are a classic. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah, now yeah. we're now concerned that little owl population is declining, and we're doing things to we're yeah. doing things to kind of promote them. They're a non-native species. They were introduced in the 1800s or something. Which like isn't that. that long ago, really, no, is it? When you think about it. There's not much in it. I swear between little owls and grey squirrels in terms of when they were introduced. Um, but oh, little right. owls, we, you know, everyone loves little owls. I love little yeah. owls. They're fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. Gray squirrels, obviously less so. No. Um, there are some animals that 
there are some animals that I think can slot into our ecosystem. Um, things like gray squirrels, obviously, they are a direct competitor to the one that's already here. But something like muntjac deer, they come in and they fill a niche because we don't have that small deer. We have red deer, we have fallow deer, we have roe deer, but we don't have anything on the scale of a muntjac. Now, muntjac, I'm very aware, cause a lot of damage when they get when their population uh, gets to huge levels because they browse the, the low shrub layer that things like nightingales and stuff likes. But is that because there's no predators of muntjac? Is that because yeah. we don't have, is it the fault that that thing is here? Because all deer, even the native ones are a problem at the minute in British conservation. Yeah, oh yeah, massively. Too many of them. Um, so is it a case that the muntjac is a problem or if we had a more, complex ecosystem yeah. with all its components would the muntjac just slot in and a, a nice example of this is in poland in the and i, I can never pronounce it the bayer forest or whatever it is the amazing okay. ancient forest in poland that has bison and um wolves and it's basically if you want to go and see what europe used to look like you go to this forest in poland and they have a, a pretty good population of raccoon dogs which come right, from japan wow. Okay. which are little, I don't know what family they're in. They're probably some kind of mustelid, but they, they literally look like a cross between a raccoon and a dog. And they were very popular pets that were brought over from Japan. And now there's a thriving population in, um, in this forest and across lots of Europe. Um, but in the forest, they also have wolves. They have lynx. And although they are a generalist predator that eat ground nesting birds and things like that, when I've spoken to people who work quite extensively in that forest, that animal doesn't seem to be having pretty much any noticeable negligible effect on native wildlife because it's just slotted into that ecosystem and it's got that top down pressure yeah. to really make it part of the ego ecosystem rather than being able to dominate the ecosystem. Yeah. So and I'd be really interested to know because one thing I, I don't know loads about is underwater life and fish. Yeah. Um, so I'd be really interested to know about your perspective on invasive non-native species when it comes to freshwater habitats. Yeah, so the trouble with non-native freshwater species is typically you've got invertebrates, you've got fish, and they breed at an alarming rate. So when you have a muntjac or a bird, they might only have, what, half a dozen young at most a year. So they don't they take their time to spread. But something like a, a zander or a catfish, signal crayfish, can have thousands of young in, in one season. So it can be quite a dramatic change to an ecosystem when you get lots of things that weren't there before. And it's interesting that you, you say about slotting in. So something like a Xander, which is a, a, a predatory kind of perch, a little bit bigger, they were introduced by the same person who introduced gray squirrels, the Duke of Bedford. Mm. He introduced muntjacs, he introduced gray squirrels, he introduced Xander, and he introduced was catfish. So he had game, he was, he was keen on, on weird things. Mm. And um, Sander get to a similar size to pike. And what you tend to find is pike numbers will go down slightly because there's competition for food. But the pike that remain tend to get bigger because they eat the Sander as well. Oh. So um, they'll eat the little Sander anyway. So it kind of gets to an equilibrium. It'd be better if they weren't here, obviously. But it's very difficult to remove them because you've got a non-native species in a medium that we can't really see and control very well. So yeah. normally... Once a non-native species, a freshwater species gets established, it's almost impossible to uh, eradicate it. The exception being something like a koi pew, 
which yes. were around in the 60s but i mean a big a big kind of fat beaver looking thing is a little bit easier to get rid of than you know hundreds of thousands of crayfish or um or Xander or things like that. So sometimes they slot in, but then other, you know, signal crayfish being the absolute um, mm. epiphany of that is that they, there's no foolproof way to get rid of them. The really depressing thing is we've tried poisoning, draining rivers. There was even a study in Nottingham actually of a, a lake in uh, Bullwall. Have you heard of Bullwall? You know yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um, there was in a, in a lake there and they were getting the large male signal crayfish because they uh, cannibalize the smaller ones. I thought, right, if we get these and castrate them, then they'll eat the smaller ones and eventually they'll, they'll all gone. And these things are so uh, fucking hardcore, they regrow their balls. Wow. Like, so they are just, you know, the terminator of the natural world. So they, they chop them off, they're off you go. And within, you know, a few months, they'd grown them back and they were like, come at me, bro. Wow. So, um, you know, that doesn't even stop them. So it's quite... Um, it can be depressing. And what I was going to ask you, actually, is when do you accept that it's pointless? At what stage are you like, Jesus, there's so many of these frigging things. Yeah. How the hell are you going to get rid of them all? The cost of getting rid of them and known must be, you know, uh, like like grey squirrels, like, like to actively get rid of every single grey squirrel in the UK. How the fuck do you do that? You know, I know. And, and that's the because I would I would you know, still having said this about invasive species, I think it's more about looking at it realistically than idealistically. Yeah. Because yeah, I, yeah. idealistically, I would love to click my fingers and see every non-native species gone. Yeah. Um, but that isn't going to happen. And like you say, things like great, but then you think, you think about some of the things we've eradicated in, not just in the UK, but in the world. And I always think about the, um, the most extreme example is is the passenger pigeon in the US, which yeah. about 200 years ago was the most populous bird on earth. There were billions of it. And it was this pigeon that had this really unique behavior where it was hyper social. And there are astonishing reports of flocks that would blacken the skies as they flew over that would take there's one report of somebody who said that a flock took three days to fly over um, and that when they would land on trees they could topple the trees like and this is this is an animal that lived 200 300 years ago in these ridiculous numbers what we would call now plague proportions right and what started happening is when uh europeans went over to north america and colonized it we of course started farming um displacing a lot of native americans that had mainly been hunting uh, and started farming when you start farming the pigeons start to eat all your food so we killed them killed them in unimaginable numbers and the really unique thing about the passenger pigeon is it needed those huge numbers to breed and feel uh, safe enough to breed right. within a couple of hundred years 19 it's like 1911 1913 14 something like that the last one died in a zoo and within a couple of hundred years, we took the most populous bird on earth across an entire continent of North America and made it extinct. So is getting rid of gray squirrels? Well, yeah. Difficult? yeah, yeah. It's but a good of course, way of putting it. Of course, there are lots more, you know, we, we are, there, imagine the opposition to trying to get rid of gray squirrels now because they are a much loved. I animal. know. I mean, Facebook is a, 
is a great example of that. And I'm on some of the groups and someone will post a, a picture of this little grey squirrel and they're like, oh, look at Nutkins. He's having his peanuts <laughs> today. And I, you know, I'm just thinking I'd smash it with a baseball bat if I had half the, if I had half the chance. But um, yeah, people do like their greys. And, you know, how are you going to get into every person's garden and say, right, well, mm. we're just going to shoot your your little mate that's coming on the feeder. There's no way. Exactly. No. So and- I don't know. I don't know. And, and parakeets as well. Parakeets are a good one. Yeah, and they seem yeah. to be, that conversation seems to be, seems to be uh, growing in, in terms of more people now start questioning it. And, and I went in September when lockdown wasn't, you know, when we were allowed to move around a little bit, I was in London and I fed the parakeets in, I can't remember which park, but they come, park. Down, yeah, they come down yeah. onto your hand and you're feeding them. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, these are really cool. <laughs> they are. All my, I was so fickle. All my prejudices against this non-native bird completely went out the window. But then I think another point it raises in that book is what we've done with ecosystems now, particularly urban ecosystems. So things where parakeets slot in, um, you could say gray squirrels, although you can find them pretty much anywhere, is we have raised what was there to the ground. And we have created a blank canvas. And is anything native to the ecosystem that we've created, which is a city? Or should we just be grateful as we move forward with the situation on the planet, which is only going to get worse? It's fucked. Climate change is going to start, you know, heating up the whole thing. And we're probably going to have to be grateful for what we're left with. And should we demonize the animals that survive, that thrive alongside what we've done to the world? Um, Things like parakeets, things like gray squirrels. Or, and that's why it talks about non-native species being nature's salvation in the book, is that it says these animals are gonna see us through to actually a future that is more biodiverse than if we try and keep all the specialists in their little boxes, because the world is changing faster than they can. Whereas actually we need to give some love to the animals that can take anything that's thrown at them. So, Yeah, I mean, it's a good point mentioning climate change because, of course, some native species will will struggle. I mean, it's something the watchers have covered, haven't they, the last couple yeah. of years. And there will be some non-natives that, you know, do better. I mean, like, come to mind is swallowtails. So I think the ones in Norfolk, they'll probably struggle a little bit with, if Norfolk's going to dry out a tad. But then you've got the continental swallowtail, which superficially looks the same but it's much more generalist and they are starting to come over um, like Southeast of England. They're finding them now. Or if you look at uh, common frogs uh, in the UK, they prefer a slightly cooler climate and a wetter climate as opposed to say marsh frogs, which are non-native, but they like it warm. They're more active, warm, Mm. they spread warmer. So should we not sell them? Is marsh frog the one that's um, that's where I am in Bristol, down on the Somerset levels? Is that where they have in uh, Hamwall and Shapwick Heath, and they have they make a really loud noise in the summer. There are similar species. They're called Perez frogs, and uh, same same family. So it's really confusing, and and I won't go into massive detail, but they're all called green water frogs, and then they split off into loads of different families. Uh, okay. And Perez is one marsh pool. Uh, in fact, actually, do you know Idle Valley Nature Reserve? I do, yeah, very well. There is a shitload of marsh frogs there now. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I used to work at Idle Valley in an, in another life a few years ago. I was um, I used to teach photography there, mm. and there wasn't any there. That was maybe eight years ago, and then I saw one of the wardens post a video at um, it's a scrape. Is it called the Tarn or something? 
The is it the one close to the? It's not near the visitor centre. It's kind of like the other side of the reserve. There's like a big scrape yeah. that's quite good for birding, I think. And uh, one of the reserve wardens was like, oh, here we are at the tarn or whatever it's called. In the background, all you could have <laughs> it was just littered with marsh frogs. And God knows how they got there. Obviously, someone's chucked them in, but absolutely loads of them. Uh, and, and a kind of point to make with them, uh, again, it'd be better if they weren't there. But marsh frogs are great food for herons. Bit bitterns love them. Bitterns go absolutely nuts for them. Uh, great crested newts like eating the tadpoles. So... And that's what no. that's what the 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 guys I've spoken to down on the Somerset levels, uh, the RSPB, Natural England, the people who manage the reserves down there, the Wildlife Trust, they're not against those frogs being there because they're supporting. You know that was the first place that great white egrets bred in the UK. Black crowned night heron have bred there. Uh, little bitten have bred there. Um, they've oh. got the biggest population of bitterns in the country, uh, highest density. Uh, and is it a coincidence that they have? all these frogs and they don't they don't seem to think that you know as long as these frogs aren't carrying chytrid or anything when they're released uh, yeah. that they're really having any negative impact on the environment well they're actually quite resistant to chytrid because they bask and chytrid oh. dies under uv so it doesn't it doesn't like being in the uv and these water frogs like to sit in the sun they'll sit there so they're very resistant to chytrid so there aren't many downsides really That's i'm really not i sound i sound like i'm advocating the release i'm not advocating the release of them at all but they're, they're, and they're bloody cool if you see. Some of these yeah. marsh frogs are like the size of your hand. They're big buggers, you know, yeah. uh, and they're bright green, you know, Kermit, proper Kermit frogs. So yeah. um, I love them. I think they're great. But obviously, you know, it'd be nice if they weren't here. But warming climate, lots of herons, what, you know, they're going to do, uh, do well. One of the things I, I wondered if you heard about, have you come across compassionate conservation? Has that crossed your desk? Oh, and not no i'm not familiar with that term no okay then right i'm gonna uh, i don't wear glasses but if i did wear glasses i'd be putting them on now because i'm <laughs> going to pick up this copy of bbc wildlife magazine okay. um, and this is a new thing that's come across and compassionate conservation is basically uh conservationists from india from north america are advocating this new form of conservation where nothing gets killed oh, basically <laughs> go on <laughs> so, uh, so um, they're kind of well. The clues in the title. They don't want anything to 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 be killed, and it's it, they're kind of exploring other options like sterilisation or keeping them in 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 zoos. And it's starting to uh, to gain weight, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, you know. But it, there's it's a really interesting. I went, what issue was it? I, so it's it's worth a little read on both sides of it. It is um, the December. Oh, so the one that's just just kind of come out, December, BBC Wildlife. But there's a big article about it. You're probably able to find some stuff online. But yeah, mm -hmm. they're just advocating this. But obviously, the the reality is you can't. Well, in my eyes, you can't leave some of these non-natives because some of them do cause big problems. I mean, the classic one, uh, the mice on South Georgia. Yes. Well, I think they were eating albatross <laughs> chicks alive. Yeah, they, they do, were saying. Yeah. Well, they were saying like, well, okay, well, if you leave those mice, there'd be no albatross left. So there are definitely instances where that's just not viable you can't definitely and, and it and it is a shame and i get i get the viewpoint of people that say well it's not the animal's fault um we put them there yeah um and therefore it's our responsibility to deal with it and if the best way of dealing with it involves the lethal removal of those animals i uh, i think i think that's necessary to do it we have we have as We've said we've messed the world up so much that um, 
I think we have to by whatever means necessary. And I think really interesting debate is um, when it comes to organisations like the RSPB, who they don't hide, but they don't publicise the fact that they control on some of their reserves, foxes, corvids and deer. Yeah. And the reason they're controlling things like foxes, corvids, etc., is because they are hanging on to some of the last populations in the UK of things like curlew, things like red shank, other wading birds, lapwing, some of those strongholds. And they could, and they often do, build big predator fences and things around it, but that's not going to stop a crow flying in. Um, and it's necessary, if we want those birds and if we want the diversity, the biodiversity of life in this country and across the world, when we're just constantly simplifying the landscape and making it a perfect habitat for generalist animals, we have to fight back on behalf of those animals that are losing. And unfortunately, that will involve killing some. Um, so yeah, compassionate conservation, it's a nice idea. Great if we, if we can do it and it works successfully, but I think in the real world, unfortunately, we have to be a little bit more cold hearted. Yeah. And I guess like you were saying earlier, all those species they're controlling, none of them are rare. They're, they're absolutely mm. everywhere. If they I don't know the exact numbers, but even if they can, let's say they can have a few hundred, that's still like a drop in, you know, a drop in the ocean that these species are, are found absolutely everywhere. So, yeah. And yeah. to save, like you said, in, in terms of the albatrosses, you know, to save animals that the vast majority of their breeding population might be on that one island and you just you look at that and you think well if you don't kill them that that bird could well go extinct or you're certainly pushing it down the road to extinction um yeah. it's probably worth killing a few mice yeah yeah exactly i, I think so i mean i think it's clear to say we're both quite interested in, in non-natives are there any in particular that you're that maybe surprised you so i mean like we talk about the parakeets i mean there's the scorpions in kent i went to mm. see those a couple of years ago amazing absolutely incredible to see them so are there any, any that you're like i did not know we had those in the uk so the one i uh discovered for myself i suppose was um here in bristol there's a big population of um wall lizards from oh, is Europe yeah european wall lizard and during lockdown when i was doing my walks from the flat i went up to um clifton observatory which overlooks the bridge and there was this whacking great big green lizard that i could <laughs> get and i got within about 30 centimeters of it i got a really nice picture of just on my phone and was googling it there and then and it was um yeah the european they're quite lizard. ballsy they're a ballsy lizard yeah yeah. And I, I, I then over the summer saw loads of them because I went out looking for them and I'd sit in, I'd go out in the morning and I'd sit on the, the rocky bits next to the Clifton suspension bridge and in the heat of the sun with like the rocks and there's like red valerian growing everywhere and you've got lizards running and it just feels like you're in the Mediterranean. Um, <laughs> so that was really surprising. They were, they were, they were great. And they're another animal that I think when we were talking about animals slotting in, um, are wall lizards just filling a niche uh, of a... Well, there's no lizard in the UK that does that. I mean, as far as, you no, know, because sand is, I mean, common lizards can live on rocky areas, but not typically cliffs. And sand lizards are really rare. So they're not really going to be impacted in that area, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. So so there's them. And I'm... I'm sure the local one... kestrels will, will be liking them well, as exactly. well. There are kestrels that breed in, in Avon Gorge, and I'm sure yeah. they're eating, <laughs> eating those. Um, but what I'm really interested in when it comes to the whole non-native debate um, 
is the whole so one of one of the non-native things when you asked is anything surprise does anything surprise me is the uh one thing i find fascinating is eagle owls in the uk yeah yeah and the, fact the fact there is a non there is a wild feral population of eagle owls breeding in the uk um don't think anyone truly knows the numbers but they're certainly out there birds have been ringed people are monitoring them <laughs> and um the big divide is whether we should let them be whether we should encourage them even or whether we should wipe them out because i think there was a case in the forest of boland where eagle owls completely wiped out a hen harrier nest um so they you know they'll kill anything they'll kill buzzards they'll kill foxes they'll whatever they'll take a fox yeah 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 really how big are they well, eagle owls. I don't know how how big this is. Not great for audio media. Yeah. <laughs> moving my moving my yeah. hands. Um, <coughs> I'm not sure how big they are, but they are. They've big just to take got, a fox. Yeah, they've just <laughs> they're just built so strong, and right. of course they hunt at night when other things. Well, I suppose foxes can still see quite well at night, but they'll take things like buzzards off their nests and all sorts of stuff. Do you reckon they take a muntjac? Like kill two birds oh, with one stone? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're very partial to a muntjac. There we go. Let's get more eagle so, owls out. So some people are arguing that as the wolves of the sky, introducing a top predator like this would be good for things like muntjac and, you know, things like badgers. I think there's a, a very honest discussion to be had about yeah. badgers in the UK. And if they weren't protected, I'm fairly sure conservation organisations would have them on the same list of foxes and some of their reserves when it comes to controlling their numbers um, because badger numbers are massively high. They're a generalist animal and we've removed... There's no predators. Nothing's, nothing's controlling them. Exactly. Um, and I, you know, I love badgers, but when it comes to the hard-nosed conservation of it, is there a, a question there to be had? So if we had something like eagle owls, could they have this positive effect? I but guess as well, because the they're argument... both, sorry to interrupt, I guess because they're both nocturnal, badgers would feature, I don't know what percentage, but you would expect badgers to be in its diet, wouldn't you? Because yeah, they're both so nocturnal certainly, animals. Certainly badger cubs. Um, yeah. I mean, I've seen photos of a golden eagle nest with badger in it. Uh, okay. Um, so I'm sure for an eagle owl that's more active at night when it's going to come in contact with a badger, um, certainly. Um, but the argument always goes back to this very human thing that we've decided is when when does something become native and when doesn't it and the blurred lines within that that a lot of talk of reintroduction slash reintroduction or whatever is now happening so for eagle owls there seems to be potentially some old bones the question is were they before britain became an island was that you know you're talking kind of ice age back when britain was back when Britain was joined to the rest of Europe and were eagle owls living here after seven, 8,000 years ago when Britain became an island. And we'll never know the answer to it because it's, it sits in this blurred point where we have bones, but we don't know exactly what time they're from. And there's no real references to eagle owls in literature, no strong references like there is for, you know, birds that were killed and eaten in banquets and stuff like that. Are they found across the pond <coughs> nearby? Like, are they in France and Belgium? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so th so that's another thing is that they they breed in quarries in uh, the Netherlands and all that kind of stuff. Now the birds that we have in the UK are almost certainly all released birds because eagle owls are very commonly kept in captivity. You can buy an eagle owl for something like 60, 80 quid online. Um, really? And they wow. are yeah, and they are. It's probably too easy to get hold of an eagle owl. 
uh, and breed them. So falconers, maybe that's giving a bad name to falconers, people who shouldn't have eagle owls probably, are losing them or releasing them. And that's where our small feral population of eagle owls is coming from. But the question then becomes is, do we leave them on grounds that they are an old native? Like goshawks, falconers were responsible for goshawks, us having goshawks now, because they were made extinct in the 1700s or something like that. Is that goshawks, right? Yeah, so goshawks. The, so the majority okay. of goshawks in the UK are all releases, are they? All or of probably. them. Probably. Oh, is that? I did not know that. Wow. Goshawks, goshawks became completely extinct in the UK. Right. And falconers took it upon themselves pretty much to bring goshawks over from, pretty sure it was Finland, Scandinavia, uh, and they, they they trained them for the falconry and then they started releasing them because they wanted wild birds that they could then take falconry birds from so okay. we have falconers to thank for the fact that goshawks we have them in the first place oh. um <laughs> because they were they were made extinct by you know all this historical persecution so are, do eagle owls fall into that category or is this a release of a non-native top apex predator that could seriously threaten some of our native, I mentioned killing hen harriers, things like that. And there's probably never going to be a clear answer for eagle owls. So it will sit in that margin that's constantly kicked backwards and forwards. And for me, they're one of the really interesting uh, discussions to have. And, and now we're all getting excited about things like bison being used in the UK for um, conservation projects, but they also sit in that weird thing and you see lots of conversations on twitter about people saying well they were never native here after the ice age and should we be trying to get our country back to what was here in the ice age when we're going through you know intensive warming um so things like that that's that's the um the non-native debates i find really interesting yeah quite polarizing really isn't it because you're mm. going to get passions running high on um on on both of them i mean when, when i've looked into it some of the non-native surprised me so I don't know how, how if you would class this. I would personally class it, but uh, the University of Nottingham, do you know, in Highfields near Beeston, they've got a, yeah. there. There's a population of geckos that live in the uh, in the uni. No way, in the yeah. uni. Yeah, in the uni. <laughs> so they've been there for about. Be a great story. They've been there for about thirty years, and no one's exactly sure how they got there. Whether it was a student who got them as a pet, or whether they because there's, there's an animal science there, so they could have got out there. And every now and again, like the cleaner will find a gecko in the. Um, in the light bulbs and stuff and i'm dying because I, I, I lecture at the uni every now and again i'm dying to go with a head torch at night in the summer and see if i can go find some of these geckos on the wall you know like if you're on a holiday in spain or something they're all over yeah. the place i'd love you to go what, at night do you know what species they are almost certainly uh turkish geckos or moorish geckos so they're a european species so oh, wow. they can't survive in the uk winter it'd be too cold for them so they have to stay inside but there's anecdotal reports of seeing them outside in the summer on the side of buildings but there's so many insects that get trapped in there there's a lot there's plenty of food they you know live in dry climates so they don't need a lot of water and i mean we did last when was it last year they caught a little baby one I was, so i've seen them i've seen a baby one there so i think that's great i think it's loads of those kind of weird ones i mean the stick insects in cornwall yeah uh, there's a lot of those i've seen those before so i quite like the species that you can't really picture being in the uk and you're like or wallabies. There's, I don't know if there's still wild wallabies. There certainly was. I think Derbyshire had some. They were, they were, yeah, the Peak District. The Peak was that District, right? Yeah. Are they still, not, not there famous. no more? I don't believe so. I certainly don't no. think there's been any sightings for a while. I think they've, okay. they've gone now. There yeah. is. There are wallabies that live pretty much wild on a random lock in Scotland. Oh, right. Um, but it's the Isle owned, of Man as well, or Isle of Wight. Yeah, the Isle of Man Isle does of Man. have. Okay. Um, in, in living in the swamps in the Isle of Man, there are wallabies right. in there too. Yeah. Um, so... 
they're the ones that interest me the really wacky ones that you're just like what what is that doing here you know i think didn't you do great. didn't you do something on i think i remember seeing something on youtube that you did about non-natives and a, a, a red red swamp crayfish that's i think i watched a video where you yeah. were looking for them in london that's right yeah so i did um and then i realized that how much time goes into making youtube videos and i gave up after a bit <laughs> but um, but yeah i did i went to london because um there are seven seven non-native crayfish in the uk so you've got signals which are the celebrities and everyone knows about them and um, but then there's lo loads of other species all around london coincidentally around food markets so they've just been released but these nah. red swamps are from america and this was hampstead heath pond littered with the things absolutely littered and they're bright red and really weird looking um, they've not spread too much beyond that but um you know mitten crabs as well freshwater crab that we get in in some of the rivers so yeah there's loads of loads of creepy weird stuff if you uh if you know where to yeah look. and there's i was actually reading about this before you even got in touch about the this podcast i was re reading about um another thing that i think is so out of place is we i spoke about raccoon dogs in poland but in um berlin again actually they have a thriving population of actual raccoons um yeah, and okay. they are they are found all across germany france into madrid in spain um and they just you know they just live like raccoons do they live in people's lofts and you could if you go out into your if something's rummaging through your bins in berlin it could be a fox but it could also be a raccoon and yeah. there was when was it it's like 2016 camera trap photograph you can find it in the middle it's online in the middle of scotland someone was camera trapping and got a raccoon oh, and wow. the the uh i think it was posted i think the guy posted it on twitter because i went back and looked for it the guy posted it on twitter on april fool's day and it was just coincidence oh. <laughs> um and every, everyone underneath is like yeah or right, you have to try harder than that um, <laughs> but it was true and there have been a couple of reports of raccoons in the uk and um the worry there is that you know we, we eventually end up with a feral population but they always just you know they're so american that the thought of having yeah, raccoons rummaging yeah, through yeah. the bins it's a bit crazy trash pandas is the yes. kind of slang isn't it yeah yeah there was a woman who uh, lived in west bridgeford she always used to walk it through this through the town center every now and again <laughs> everyone would be walking their dog and this raccoon would be on so i think they're relatively easy to get i don't even think you need a well, license no, they're banned now. So oh, they are banned. They're ah, banned. Okay. You can't you can't breed them and you can't sell them. So anybody okay. who has them anymore, the same with raccoon dogs, actually, because right. of the situation developing in Europe, um, you can if you have one, you you can only keep it. You can't sell it. You can't breed it. Okay, that's the same with uh, red-eared slider terrapins. So you know the terrapins that you see in parks and stuff. Nearly always red-eared sliders, so they're they're illegal to sell now. You can't buy them, but if you've got one, you've just got to go wait for it to pop its clogs, basically. But yeah. there's a few um, a few still about. It's the same for um, common minor birds as well, which are if you go to pretty much anywhere in the tropics, they're absolutely everywhere um non-native in are they the ones that the do East. the weird nests is it those they no they kind of nest a bit like um they well they'll nest anywhere that's the thing but oh. tree holes they're they're a, they're a member of the starling family really oh okay um so they are a, a, a starling and uh, they're now banned i think from from selling or whatever from oh. fear that and i saw a picture a, a video, video on twitter actually somebody just posted it a few months ago just saying is this a field fair singing and it was just a video of a tree and you couldn't see the bird but you could hear this bird singing uh, and it was a common minor 
and uh, in the UK, in the UK, in yeah. the wild. Oh, and okay. I asked the guy and told him to go back and and see if he could confirm it and what I thought it was. And he went back the next day and saw it. Um, so yeah, they they are another bird that's kind of commonly kept in aviculture and because there aren't. Um, you mentioned about freshwater species earlier, but there, I'm trying to think of any really bad non-native birds in the UK because there aren't. I know uh, <laughs> there's an ibis that people are worried about, isn't there? Yes, there's uh is it African sacred ibis? I think African sacred ibis is in big populations in Italy. Yeah. I think if that's I'm remembering it. rightly, which has escaped from collections. Um we're likely to get with the continued warming of the climate slash our uh drive to create more wetland habitat, which is seeing us being colonized by egrets and uh all that kind of stuff. We're probably likely to get glossy ibis breeding soon, but that will just be a natural colony. Yeah, that would be that wouldn't be invasive, would it? That'd just but, be yeah. yeah. Sacred ibis, African sacred ibis, yes, certainly. Um, I suppose bad birds, there really aren't oh, um both waterfowl actually that jump to mind. One is Egyptian geese. Um oh, are they bad, not, are they? Well, no, not particularly bad, but just very aggressive. Birds. okay okay um so when you see them they're often chasing things around yeah they are quite nutty aren't they yeah so yeah. but they're not necessarily bad but the one example that comes to mind is the only bird two birds actually in the uk that we've successfully or almost successfully eradicated okay. one was monk parakeets which all right like the ring-necked parakeets they build massive nests like weaver bird style nests but a lot messier. Are they and the they ones gen- in Madrid? There's quite yes. a lot in Spain, yes. isn't there? Yeah, yes, there is. Okay. And they've got like a white front rather than the all green appearance of a ringneck parakeet uh, and a little bit smaller. And they um, they it can cause some serious damage when they build on telegraph pylons and things like that. So there was a uh, population of them somewhere in London, I think, and they went out and eradicated them so that they didn't become established. And then perhaps the most controversial and uh, famous example is ruddy ducks in the Yeah, UK. yeah, we had them in knots. Yeah, so yeah. where back when I was starting birding as a kid, um, ruddy ducks were something that I'd see. I'd go to Clumber Park, which was just down the road yeah. from me. Colic, ha- Colic had a lot of them. And Colic ruddy Pop. ducks, yeah, yeah, ruddy ducks would be seeing a ruddy duck displaying a North American bird that was brought over here by um, Peter Scott, who set up. Uh, the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust and Slimbridge and all that stuff. Oh. He brought them over as part of his collection. I think he brought two pairs over. And from there, we got, <laughs> they we got, got busy. The, the ruddy duck invasion. And um, yeah, they uh, the males, absolutely gorgeous birds, deep red with a bright blue bill. And they do all this displaying. But the worry was that we were creating such a large population that they were starting to move south into Europe where they would they were breeding with the very closely related within the same genus white-headed duck of spain which is really rare and very localized to one area so the decision was made that for the good of the white-headed duck so we didn't dilute the gene population and therefore the whole species that we would eradicate every ruddy duck and um it was really successful that now it's been maybe eight ten years since i last saw one um and they've been mopping up the last ones. Uh, I think I saw when I was looking into the invasive species stuff that then to mop up the last ones, it now costs about £5,000 to kill each bird. 
because you've got to go to all the lengths that you've got to because they're now so rare. Um, yeah. But that has been successful. It was massively controversial amongst the birding community and I imagine the wider nature-loving community. But um, that was a successful eradication of a bird. But in terms of it actually causing any, I suppose, damage in the same way that something like a grey squirrel would or a mink, of course, being one of the worst invasive species. Rudy ducks didn't, but it was this hybridization problem. Same thing as wildcats then, I guess, is it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly the same with with feral domestic cats yeah. breeding with wildcats and diluting the, the population. I mean, it's a similar point to what I was on about earlier, I guess, but it's also like, um, I know, uh, I don't know if you know Pete Cooper, but he does a lot of rewilding yeah, yeah, and stuff, yeah. and he'll hate me for saying this, but, you know, it's like, what's the point if there's only 50 left and there's God knows how many frigging cats all around that are just going to plough these poor wild cats as soon as they get half a chance? <laughs> is it sort of a, is it a loss... Is it a lost cause? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, well, now they're doing, um, I think the future is, um, what people seem to be doing now, is bringing wildcats over from, is getting completely rid of the notion that is, it is the Scottish wildcat. Yeah. Although it may have been a separate subspecies, yeah. is now just bringing over the European wildcat with the belief that you can release it in high enough numbers that they only want to breed with themselves. Okay. And any hybridization that occurs on the edges of the population um, is quickly diluted by the fact there are so many wildcats. And the reason we have problems with hybridization nowadays is because the wildcat was persecuted into smuch, such small numbers that it doesn't have a choice but to breed with feral cats. Right, um, I'm with you. I'm with you. But that in makes, in the natural sense. order of things, in, in areas of Europe where they've been reintroduced or are living quite successfully, a wildcat will always prefer to mate with a wildcat and they will they're quite aggressive to feral cats but in scotland they've got no choice that's all right okay that they, makes, they want that makes... they want a bit of action they've got to go for a, <laughs> go for a, a tartan up domestic cat well yeah, I, well i was about to say you, you would wouldn't you but i would go for a for a, for a domestic cat as um really made my feelings known on this podcast before my uh ideology on those but look uh this brings us kind of to the end of it buddy so it's been fascinating talking to it and i, I don't it's one of those things where it's, it's difficult to have a clear answer on it but hopefully this has given people some food for thought yeah i don't think there is and, and i've certainly not come to a clear answer and um it's it's all there to be debated and discussed but the, i think the thing it taught me uh, maybe more than anything was just to uh, constantly reevaluate the uh, the beliefs you hold when it comes to conservation well i mean in anything but in conservation and nature uh, and read things that challenge it and, and some of it sticks and makes you think about the world a little bit differently i think so i think so buddy well look best of luck with winter watch hope it all goes well and uh, i'll uh, i'll see you soon so tara duck thank you that was jack badams it's thought-provoking stuff isn't it some species we demonize some species we idolize both of them being non-native. Things to think about. Next week, I've got another Jack on. Jackie... <laughs> that sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? Uh, I've got Jackie Poon, who's also lived in Nottingham. So my podcast is getting quite niche now, just interviewing Jacks from Nottingham. But originally, Jackie is from China and currently is back there. He's a camera operator, director and drone pilot, having worked for the Blue Chip BBC series, Disney Nature, National Geographic, you name it. And we talk about the emerging wildlife film industry in China, what it's like working on these major series, and to be blunt, are pandas fucked? This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.